Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the ninth episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game in this country from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. The appointment of Alf Ramsey as the England manager in 1962 giving him full control over every aspect of the team's selection, was a throw of the dice from an FA with a World Cup Finals to host in less than four years' time. But there were points at which Ramsey's appointment started to look as though it may have been the wrong one, whilst the behaviour of the English head of FIFA was also doing considerable harm to the idea of hosting a major tournament in this particular country as well. England's 1966 World Cup win proved to be the start of a brief Indian summer for British football, but changes were coming which would change the game in this country in far more profound ways than trophies ever could. This is the story of football in England and Wales between 1964 and 1968. England swings like a pendulum do Bobby's on bicycles two by two Westminster Abbey, the Tower of Big Ben The rosy red cheeks of the little children Now if you huff and puff and you finally save enough money up to Take your family on a trip across the sea Three nations, England, West Germany and Spain entered the race to host the 1966 World Cup Finals, but Spain withdrew from the bidding process prior to voting by the FIFA Congress, which was held in Rome on the 22nd of August 1960. This meant a straight vote between England and West Germany, which England won, but only by the relatively tight margin of 34 votes to 27. It was a decision that several of those who voted for England may have had cause to regret a year later, when Stanley Rouse took office as the president of FIFA. Rouse had been an internationalist in his outlook, bringing the home nations back into the organisation in 1946 after 18 years of self-imposed exile, and he may even have been considered a moderniser in the 1930s, when his simplified edition of the laws of the game was adopted worldwide. By 1961, though, Rouse was 61 years old, and his arrival into this somewhat delicate position came at a time of considerable upheaval. When the African Cup of Nations began in 1957, apartheid South Africa was banned from the tournament and was subsequently banned from the Confederation of African Football altogether. Shortly before Rouse's appointment, the Football Association of South Africa was suspended from FIFA pending an investigation. But when Rouse and Jim Maguire of the US Soccer Federation visited the country, what they took from it was staggeringly tineered to the overt structural racism within South African society. 
Rouse argued that only the FASA could represent South Africa and described dissident federations as quite unsuitable to represent association football in South Africa. In 1963, in part because of its pledge to send an all-white team to the 1966 World Cup and an all-black one to the 1970 World Cup, South Africa was readmitted into FIFA, although such was the fury from Africa that they had to be placed into the Asian qualification area. Then, in 1964, came the last straw, when FIFA decided that the lineup for the 1966 World Cup finals would include 10 teams from Europe, including the host England, 4 from Latin America, and 1 from the Central American and Caribbean regions, all of which left just one place to be shared between three confederations, Africa, Asia and Oceania. The protest against such an insultingly tiny allocation to three confederations was led by Ghana, who had just won back-to-back African Cup of Nations titles. Ghana's Ohene Jian, who sat on FIFA's executive committee, told Rouse by telegram that Afro-Asian countries struggling through painful, expensive qualifying series for one ultimate finalist representation is pathetic and unsound. In July 1964, the 15 African federations confirmed that they would be boycotting the tournament unless an African team was given a place in the finals. FIFA refused, so in October 1964, almost the entire African and Asian continents withdrew from the 1966 World Cup finals altogether. The entire African and Asian qualifying tournament came down to a single two-legged tie between the two nations who had defied the boycott, North Korea and Australia, which was won comfortably by the North Koreans. Back in England, meanwhile, the first test of Alf Ramsey's management of the England team came with the 1964 European Championships. England hadn't entered the first edition of UEFA's new baby in 1960 and had to enter into the preliminary round of the competition with a two-legged match against France. The first leg ended in a one-all draw at Hillsborough, but the second leg in Paris, played in February 1963, was a disaster. France won by five goals to two after racing into a 3-0 half-time lead. The press savaged Ramsey the following day and the pressure only increased still further when England were beaten at home by Scotland a couple of months later. England, however, would be the only home nation to appear at the finals, with all three of the others finishing in second place in their groups. Two defeats in their opening three matches ultimately cost Wales their place. They lost their opening match against Denmark and then their third against the USSR. A 2-1 win against the USSR in their penultimate game in Cardiff came too late to make any appreciable difference. England did also manage to lose the Jules Rimet trophy before the tournament even started as well. The story of that theft in itself is remarkable. A criminal broke into a stamp exhibition at which it was being displayed, ignoring stamps worth multiple times the Jules Rimet trophy's value to steal it, and launch a ham-fisted kidnap plot, which ended with a dog called Pickles finding it in a public park, wrapped in paper and string. It was certainly worthy of an Ealing comedy, but with the trophy returned, 
the tournament passed off relatively peacefully, with talk of the boycott by now almost non-existent. The 1966 World Cup Finals were the tournament at which football made its transfer from black and white to colour. FIFA's official cameras recorded the tournament in colour for the first time, to be immortalised a year later in the remarkably strange official film of the tournament, Goal. Colour TV hadn't quite reached the UK by this point, but those with 625 line black and white sets could at least watch the final on 1966's equivalent to high definition. It was a tournament with something of the night about it. The quarter-final match between England and Argentina stood out as a low point, but the nullification of Pelé and the subsequent first-round elimination of Brazil left a sour taste in the mouth, whilst even the plucky underdogs were the PR arm for a despotic government. And then, of course, there was that goal. We'll come back to that. England had started with a nervy and ultimately tedious draw against Uruguay. Despite hitting the crossbar with just a few minutes left to play, they were unable to break down a well-organised Uruguayan defence. They finally seemed to grow into their skin a little in their second match, a 2-0 win against Mexico, now best remembered for Bobby Charlton's thunderous long-range opening goal. Wembley was supposed to be hosting all of the games in this group, but the night before France had played Uruguay at White City because Wembley was hosting Greyhound Racing that couldn't be cancelled. So to the quarter-finals and Argentina. When representatives from Argentina, Uruguay, Spain and the Soviet Union arrived at a London hotel for the draw, they found that it had already been made without them, with the only witnesses being FIFA's Stanley Rouse a German representative and a couple of Africans. To add to this, the referee for the England game was German, whilst the official for West Germany's equally controversial quarter-final match against Uruguay, which saw West Germany win by four goals to nil with Uruguay having two players sent off, was English. Understandably, this led to some degree of conspiracy thinking before the match had even started and with 10 minutes to play before half-time, this reached a crescendo when Antonio Ratin, the Argentinian captain, was sent off by referee Rudolf Kreitlein. Ratin was sent off for perpetually arguing with Kreitlein, which sounds at best dubious, whilst the fact that the referee spoke no Spanish meant that there was no way that he'd been able to understand any foul or abusive language. Ratin, of course, initially refused to leave the pitch, and England won by a goal to nil with a second-half header from Jeff Hurst. Alf Ramsey's post-match comments didn't help either. We still have to produce our best, and this is not possible until we meet the right sort of opponents, and that is a team that comes out to play football and not act as animals. This comment only inflamed matters still further, but it made little appreciable difference to the 1966 finals. Regardless of what may or may not have happened, England were through to the semi-finals, 
where they saw off Portugal a little more comfortably than the final score of 2-1 may have suggested. There isn't really a great deal to say about the 1966 World Cup final between England and West Germany that hasn't already been said a million times before. Helmut Haller's late, late goal forced the game into extra time, and it was one of those goals that goes into slow motion and makes the viewer feel as though if you repeat it enough times, somebody will clear it. But had he not scored it, Martin Peters, as the scorer of England's second goal, might well have been the great hero of English football for the next few decades. As things turned out, though, that hero turned out to be Jeff Hurst instead. England's third goal in that match has also been analysed to death, so we'll just leave it to say that it seems vanishingly unlikely that the whole of the ball crossed the whole of the line. What might have happened had it not been given as a goal, we'll never know. It might well have meant a replay. Thirteen years ago, the Hungarians came and showed that England were no longer masters of football. And in those 13 years, England has fashioned a team which is on the threshold of being the world champions. And it's a free kick to West Germany. One minute to go, just 60 seconds. Every Englishman coming back, every German going forward. Now, will the Germans snatch a dramatic equaliser and bring us to extra time? It's Emmerich coming in. And he's... Oh, yes, it must do! They have done! Weber has scored in the last seconds! What a dramatic end. We are now in injury time. And there goes the whistle for the end of 90 minutes. So you can see how near England were to the World Championship. But now they have another 30 minutes. His ball running himself back. The linesman says no. It's a goal. It's a goal. Oh, the Germans go mad at the referee. This line uh, at the linesman who can only speak Russian and Turkish. And here comes Hurst. He's got some fiddler on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now! It's four. When viewed from a dryly historical angle, England's 1966 World Cup win is all the more remarkable than it seems when it's draped in the St George's flag. Before it started, there was very little to suggest that they would do it. Their performances in the World Cup final since first qualifying in 1950 had been poor and England had never got beyond the quarter-finals of a World Cup before. Even though the appointment of Alf Ramsey in 1962 had been relatively forward-thinking for the FA, Ramsey's time in charge had been patchy, 
including that 5-2 defeat in Paris near the start of his time in charge and a 5-1 loss to Brazil in the summer of 1964. Yet there they were on the winner's podium, a team without any obvious star players with the possible exception of captain Bobby Moore, winning the last World Cup to be broadcast in black and white. Hanging flags over it and repeatedly endlessly with a Dambusters soundtrack for more than half a century has, if anything, made it all feel a little less remarkable than it actually was. In 1967, it was Scotland that stole the headlines. The national team beat England by three goals to two at Wembley and declared themselves to be the champions of the world, while Celtic became the first British club to win the European Cup beating Helenio Herrera's Internazionale by two goals to one in Lisbon. Every player in the starting Celtic eleven was born within 20 miles of Celtic Park. The following year, though, the European Cup was finally came to England for the first time. Manchester City had pipped Manchester United to the 1968 Football League Championship, but United had their eyes on a bigger prize. The Munich disaster, ten years earlier, had ripped the heart out of the club, and for a little while it looked as though Manchester United may take a long time to recover. By 1962 they dropped to 15th place in the first division, and the following year they finished 19th, just three points above the relegation places. This year, however, turned out to be a turning point for the club. They won the FA Cup, and with a combination of a generation of new young players coming through and canny signings having been made, they finished in second place in the table behind Liverpool the following year, and in 1965, Manchester United became the champions of England for the first time since the Busby Babes. They won the title again in 1967. With the European Cup final in 1968 being played at Wembley, there was considerable talk of destiny before the match, and the final scoreline of 4-1 to Manchester United against Benfica seems to confirm this. This again, however, only tells part of the story. It was entirely appropriate that it should have been one of the two Munich survivors playing, Bobby Charlton, who gave Manchester United the lead with a header eight minutes into the second half. With 11 minutes to left to play, however, James Gracia equalised for Benfica, and they might have won the match had Eusebio, who broke through with just minutes left to play, not opted to drive a shot straight at Manchester United goalkeeper Alex Stepney, who clung onto the ball for dear life and pushed the match into extra time. But that wasn't it. 90 minutes up and still deadlock. The teams were weary, but the fans went. With an extra 30 minutes of play ahead, bumps, bruises and tired muscles ached like they'd never ached before. But a wet sponge and a magic massage worked miracles. And so on into the first half of extra time. And what a 15 minutes it was. Stepney collected and fed his forwards. Waiting to receive was mighty best. He simply walked the ball into the net. What a goal! United in the lead. And that wasn't all. The Busby Babes were raring to go. They hammered Benfica. Watch this fantastic goal. 
My, oh, my, how they cheered Kid, the birthday boy, for that superheader. Even Stepney joined in. The Benfica fire had nearly been extinguished. But where United finished, not on your life. Bobby Charlton made it 4-1. Manchester United had well and truly done it. They were supreme soccer champions of Europe. At last, Matt Busby, the maestro of Manchester United, had groomed a team great enough to beat Europe's best. He was king of soccer. His wonderful 11 men were all princes. So Manchester United won the European Cup, and by a hefty scoreline of four goals to one. Some will argue that this is the only record that matters, and in a very real sense it is. United might have been considered somewhat lucky to get into extra time in the first place on that night, but as Matt Busby and Bobby Charlton, the survivors of Munich, embraced on the Wembley pitch, it was an image that spoke of considerably more than mere football. While three British clubs were completing a hat-trick of major international trophies though, a decline was starting to slowly creep into league football. The clubs of the bottom divisions were starting to find the going difficult again. The post-war boom was starting to recede. Average attendances in the first season of Division 4 in 1958 were 7,720. A decade later they were at 6,080 on a trajectory that would fall to 3,500 by the middle of the following decade. Stanley Matthews had finally retired from playing five days after his 50th birthday in February 1965. The following summer, he was appointed as the general manager of Port Vale alongside Jackie Moody, and when Moody resigned in May 1967, Matthews took full control as manager of the club. In November of that year, though, Port Vale's world fell in, when it became apparent that there had been serious financial irregularities at Vale Park. A routine Football League inspection found six matters that caught their attention. They were illegal payments to two players, an illegal signing-on fee having been paid to another player, registered amateur players, the FA still made this distinction, being paid, Associate schoolboys having played for the club. Bonuses having been paid after a League Cup win earlier that season. And gifts to young players having been made by a director. Matthews, concerned at the effect that this may have on his reputation, urged the directors of the club to publicly admit their guilt. But they refused and banned him from speaking to the press about it. Port Vale didn't admit their liability until the investigation turned into charges. What was all the more strange about this was that everything that Port Vale were found guilty of was documented and minuted. It seemed more rational to blame incompetence and stupidity on the part of the directors than anything more malign. In February 1968, though, a bombshell dropped. Port Vale were fined £2,000 by the FA, with a recommendation that they be expelled from the Football League at the end of that season. Supporters and local press started a campaign of vocal support for the club, and a fund was started to pay the fine. None of this, however, was to any avail. On the 6th of March 1968, it was confirmed that the fine would be doubled to £4,000, and that Port Vale would be expelled from the Football League at the end of the 1967-68 season. 
What this effectively meant was a vote for their place back in the Football League to be held at the start of June. The vote took place outside of the normal re-election process and was effectively Port Vale Football Club applying for its place back in the Football League. They sailed through by 40 votes to 9. Regardless though, Port Vale became the second club ever to be expelled from the Football League. When the first, Leeds City, were expelled in October 1919 over similarly trifling financial misdemeanours, their place in the Football League and their fixtures had been taken over by Port Vale. The BBC faced their concerted challenge for a regular football-watching audience when the new ITV contract to London Weekend Television launched the big match in August 1968, with Brian Moore commentating and hosting and Jimmy Hill offering analysis of match incidents in a way that had never been seen before on the television in this country. Finally, football broadcasting was dragging itself into the 20th century. The BBC would respond with various experiments on Match of the Day, such as regionalised highlights, but it finally dragged itself kicking and screaming into the 1970s with a full revamp in 1971. Colour television, meanwhile arrived in Britain in 1967 on BBC Two, but didn't find its way to BBC One for another two years, with the first match of the day being shown in colour on November 15th, 1969, featuring a match between Liverpool and West Ham United. One of ITV's football acquisitions in its early years was the League Cup final. They grabbed the rights to the highlights from the BBC in 1968, and the BBC would not get an opportunity to show them again until 1981. The biggest clubs had continued with their early reticence towards taking part in the League Cup. By 1966, with the World Cup looming, something needed to be done. The Football League used the simplest and crudest methods to force this slightly ramshackle-looking competition to modernise. From the 1966-67 season on, the final would be held at Wembley as a one-off match, while the following year came the dangling of a further carrot for the biggest clubs, with the addition of a European place for the winners. In two of those first three seasons at Wembley, though, the winners came from the third division. In 1967, Queen's Park Rangers beat West Bromwich Albion by three goals to two, with a headline writer's favourite, Mark Lazarus, completing a comeback from two goals down for Rangers. Then, two years later, came Swindon Town versus Arsenal. On a pitch torn to shreds by a combination of the previous week's Horse of the Year show and torrential and persistent rain, it was the third division side who reacted better to the chaotic conditions and they won the match by three goals to one after extra time a match that was at times as much slapstick as it was football. The commentary here comes from a particularly animated Brian Moore. And now Rogers bringing it out of defence for Swindon. Lovely play. And there to take the return. Good play by Rogers. Smart, who finally pushed it home 
with Ewer and Wilson between them. Oh, what a happy man, Roger Smart. Five more minutes now for Swindon to hold out. And judging by their performance over the last 85 minutes, there's nothing to say that they can't do it. Ewer. Straight to Rogers of all people. Graham now cooled off in support. Can Cool get to it now? It's a goal by Cool! And my goodness, is he not pleased with life? Bobby Cool! Oh, what a smile! And they are really happy, he's crying! Bobby Gould is crying! John Strong, George Graham rather. And there goes the whistle for the end of 90 minutes. It may not be that he was crying, in fact, but merely wincing with pain. But there is the final score. At full time, not the final score, the score at the end of 90 minutes, Arsenal 1, Swindon 1, and we go into extra time. And it's a brave man who put his money on a winner of this game. It's still so very even and so very, very close. Very nearly through. Rodgers! A goal by Rodgers! Don't block us! Goal 23 of the season for him. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! Don Rogers, his second goal of the game, and that really puts Swindon Town utterly and completely in the clear. Jack Taylor resigned as the manager of Leeds United on the 13th of March 1961. It was a decision that would come to have far-reaching consequences. Taylor had left Queen's Park Rangers for Ellen Road in 1959, but his stay at Leeds had not been particularly happy. Leeds had spent the previous couple of seasons hovering just above the First Division relegation places and at the end of Taylor's first full season in charge, they were relegated back into the second division for the first time since 1956. Things didn't improve a great deal once back in the second division though, and when February brought four consecutive defeats and 13 goals conceded, a new board met behind closed doors to discuss what action they might take. Taylor still had a year left to run on his contract and with attendances slumping and money tight, directors were concerned about paying out the £2,500 it would take to terminate his contract. One director took the matter directly to Taylor, telling him that the club was considering its options. Taylor, who was not particularly happy with the way things had been going anyway, took the hint and quit. The director who had pushed Taylor towards the exit was one Harry Reynolds, and Reynolds already knew who he wanted to replace him. Dom Reavy had enjoyed a reasonably successful playing career, with almost 150 appearances for Manchester City and six England caps. But Reavy's transfer to Sunderland in 1956 turned out to be a disastrous piece of timing. A year later, the club was charged with making payments to players over the maximum wage. Sunderland were fined £5,000, and their chairman and three directors were suspended. Reeve's first season at the club had been a narrow brush with relegation, but he wasn't so lucky the second time around. In 1958, 
Sunderland went down for the first time in their history. Reevee, by this time 31 years old, left in November that year, staying in the first division with Leeds United. He was later made captain by Jack Taylor. Reevee was in the process of applying for the vacant Bournemouth job when Reynolds intervened. Reynolds had been asked by Reevee to draft a letter recommending him for the job. Instead, he recommended him to the board at Leeds for that job and, after gaining their assent, offered him the player managership. Don Reevee would come to reshape Leeds United in a way that no manager had done to a football club since Herbert Chapman had with Arsenal three decades earlier. The club's shirts were changed from golden blue to white, partly out of deliberate homage to Real Madrid, which was often characterised as an act of arrogance on Reevee's part, but was really just as much an act of pragmatism. It gave his players an edge if they could easily see each other out of the corner of their eyes. Meanwhile, Reevee's belief that birds brought bad luck resulted in him getting rid of the owl on the club badge and the discontinuation of the official Peacock's nickname in favour of the Whites. Leeds had added a badge, an owl in a circle, to their shirts for the first time in 1964. Surprisingly, considering the well-known distaste that Reevee had for birds, it remained there for several years. And therein lies the mess of contradictions that Don Reevee actually was. On the one hand, he treated everybody at Ellen Road as an extended family member. Players were encouraged to play bingo and otherwise socialise together. Reevee vetted the players' girlfriends and they were encouraged to get married young. He was just as meticulous in every other sense as well. Dossiers on opponents were produced and Reevee expected his players to read them. He developed a youth system that would, over time, bring through such players as Eddie Gray, Norman Hunter, Peter Lorimer and Paul Reaney. His team was promoted into the First Division in 1964. The following year, they almost won the Football League title. On the final day of the 1964-65 season, Leeds needed to beat Birmingham City to stay in the title race, being a point ahead of Manchester United, but with United having a game in hand. They drew 3 all, whilst Manchester United won. United lost their final league game, but their goal average was still sufficient to give them the title. After all of this, Leeds still had an FA Cup final to play against Liverpool. They also lost this by two goals to one after extra time. Reevee had drip-fed talent into his first eleven over the previous few years, and in 1968, a very familiar-looking team broke through the shadow cast by the team of three years earlier, and they did so in a manner that would come to represent the cynic's view of Dom Reeve's leads for the next few years. Wembley. Arsenal set the ball rolling against Leeds in the League Cup final. It was the start of one of the most unglamorous soccer matches ever witnessed on the perfect turf of the famous stadium. But 100,000 paying fans went to know that as they settled down to watch what should have been a skilled battle between two great clubs. It started out well enough with some reasonably crisp play. Arsenal made some promising attacks. But any goodwill and skill rapidly turned sour early on when Leeds were awarded a goal. Arsenal said their goalkeeper had been fouled before Terry Cooper cracked the ball home. Should that goal have been allowed? 
Watch it again from another angle as we stop the film at the vital moment in dispute. Fernell was helpless as the ball went in. The Gunners were convinced the goal should have been disallowed. But referee Hamer ignored their protest. From that moment on, things went from bad to worse. Leeds had a vital one-goal lead. Arsenal were angry and desperate to draw level. This was the result. A shameful free-for-all in the Leeds goal match. With some assistance, the referee managed to regain control. Half-time brought a welcome break in the tension, but the mood was still black on the resumption. Anything was likely to spark off more friction between the two sides. The standard of play suffered badly. Arsenal attacking. Time was running out. A goal was vital. Samuels came close to getting it, but Sprake kept the ball out. And that was that. It was all over. Leeds had won by a disputed goal. Their supporters were delighted with the result. But nobody could claim it was a great match, even though at least one fan got carried away in his efforts to congratulate the cup winners. This theme of Leeds United grinding out results continued through to the final of the 1968 Intercities Fairs Cup, the predecessor to the UEFA Cup, which was held towards the end of that year. Playing against the Hungarian side Ferenc Varos, they won the first leg at Ellen Road by a goal to nil, and then played out a goalless draw in Budapest to lift that trophy as well. By the end of 1968, England were the world champions, Manchester United were the European Cup holders and Leeds United were the Intercities Fairs Cup holders. One of these three would go on, not only to greater success on the pitch, but also to set a new template for football in this country throughout the first half of the following decade, for better or for worse. Don Reavy's Leeds were already capable of brilliance and cynicism by the end of 1968. But by this time, Reavy wasn't the only force of personality with eyes focused on the top of the first division. Dom Reavy would have bigger battles ahead in the 1970s.